Our God and our Father, we, we do give you thanks and praise and all glory, Lord, for saving us in Christ and for making us part of His body, His church. Thank you, O Lord, for giving us and blessing us today with apostolic doctrine. And thank you for the fellowship that your gospel has created. Thank you for the joy that we share commonly, the one hope that we have together that unites us together as brothers and sisters. We thank you for the sacraments that we witness today and the Lord's Supper that we'll receive this evening. And we thank you, Father, for the prayers that we enjoy and singing to you. And now, Lord, we pray that you would continue to instruct us and instruct all the little ones during this catechism hour. Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding of the faith once for all delivered to the saints and that we would continue to mature, we pray, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in that section on the Heidelberg Catechism, the grace section. And uh, again, just by means of review, uh, we typically divide the catechism up into those three G's. And so everybody together, the first is? Okay. Second? And the third? Right. Oh, that's it. Um, sometimes you'll hear it referred to as sin, salvation, service. And uh, again, just I like to put this outline up here again and again. First, you have a, an intro in questions one and two. Then the guilt section, questions three through 11. It only takes about that many for us to be convinced that we are guilty before God because of our sin. It does a fantastic job of showing how the law reveals God's righteousness, His holiness, and that we cannot meet that standard by our own good works and our own goodness. Um, the law exposes our sin the way light exposes something in the dark. And, and so the Heidelberg here does a fine job of showing that we haven't loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loved our neighbor as ourselves. Then in questions 12 all the way through 85, uh, this is where we get the gospel. And in this section, it has, uh, does a couple of things. The first thing it does, as you know, is after explaining a little bit about how we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, okay, who fulfilled the law for us, it then goes through the Apostles' Creed. Then, briefly, it talks about justification <clears throat> and the sacraments and the keys of the kingdom, church discipline. But in this Apostles' Creed section, that's where we're at right now, and this is really important because you know we say the creed, uh, week after week. We didn't say today because we had a baptism. But we need to know what, we're, what we believe in each one of those lines. And this was a, this was a big issue even in the 16th century. Uh, you know, a lot of people didn't know what the Apostles' Creed meant. And so uh, this is why uh, people like Arsinus and other reformers who crafted catechisms um, wanted to exposit the Apostles' Creed because not only does it show how we're connected to the ancient church, that's really important, but it also shows that at that time we, they wanted to instruct and help people come out of ignorance. There were even many priests who didn't know in the 16th century 
what the Apostles' Creed meant. And uh, so rather than just repeating something by rote, uh, which has its own value, you know, it's, it, I know I've met many parents who get concerned that their kids are saying the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed without understanding what those things mean. That's okay. I mean, we teach them the alphabet before they really understand, uh, you know, how vowels work and everything. We, you, there's, there's steps to instruction. So learn by, by memory at an early age, but then there, there comes that time in life where you move from just parroting words, you know, repeating them, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and then, uh, and then moving to uh, become a poet, really, where you begin to compose your thoughts and uh, you know, really reflect on what it is that you have been uh, learning and repeating since childhood. And so there's this long process. And the Heidelberg, in the way that it exposits the Apostles' Creed in this section, helps us in that process and helps us also uh, as adults uh, who continue to confess these things. We never outgrow the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, it's, it would just be, you know, very arrogant of us to say, well, I don't need the Heidelberg. Um, you know, I've, I've moved beyond that. There actually is a larger catechism that Ursinus wrote, and it's wonderful. It's, it's got over 300 questions and answers. goes into covenant theology. It's my favorite catechism, and maybe we'll do that sometime. But the Heidelberg is very succinct and helpful. Uh, so we're going to talk about our section here, but before we do that, in the gratitude section, just briefly, questions 86 through 129, it has two things that it exposits. Anybody remember what those are? So the last thing, yeah, is the Lord's Prayer. I think I heard someone say that. And then, but before that is the Ten Commandments. So same thing. We learn the Ten Commandments. These three things are the first three things we should teach our kids. The Lord's Prayer, Ten Commandments, and Apostles' Creed. And I would, would recommend going in that order. But um, we also want to know what it is we believe when we say those things. And so the Heidelberg... Uh, showing how we live a life of gratitude in response to God's grace that has saved us from our guilt, um, that's kind of fleshed out now in the Ten Commandments that serves as a rule for uh, a guide for our life and uh, standards of ethics you know, for the Christian life. And the Lord's Prayer uh, what each one of those lines in the Lord's Prayer means. Anyway, this is just to give you a quick outline and uh, hopefully we all become very familiar with the layout of the, of the Heidelberg. So in the section on, that's expositing the Apostles' Creed, we have gone through, um, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, which was Lord's Day 9, uh, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, uh, which is Lord's Days 11 and 12, our Lord, 13, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Lord's Day 14, suffered under Pontius Pilate, uh, was crucified, Lord's Day 15, dead and buried, he descended into hell, Lord's Day 16. The third day he rose again from the dead, Lord's Day 17, he ascended into heaven, uh, Lord's Day 18, and sits at the right hand of God. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Lord's Day 19. That brings us to Lord's Day 20, which is very short. Question 53. One question. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? 
the Son, His eternal God. Second, He has been given to me personally, so that by true faith He makes me share in Christ and all His blessings, comforts me, and remains with me forever. Okay, so let's think about that a little bit. This is really good. So, two parts here. The first, uh, what is that dealing with? When he says first, as well as the Father and the Son is eternal God. So, what, what, it, what is it essentially that uh, we want to make clear that we're confessing about the Holy Spirit? Yeah, that he is God. That he is part of the triune God. There, there is a, a, a pretty common misconception amongst a lot of professing Christians that uh, the Holy Spirit is not a person, uh, but rather a force, you know, may the force be with you kind of thing. And uh, the, the Holy Spirit is, is kind of a thing that you tap into and maybe possess. Um, you know, the Holy, we, don't, we don't possess the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit possesses us. Actually, Christ possesses us, and the Holy Spirit has united us with Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells us, but it's important that we understand that the, the Holy Spirit is a person. In a recent poll um, just a few years ago, 61% of people who believe that Jesus will return also agreed with the statement that the Holy Spirit is a symbol of God's presence or power, but is not a living entity. 61%. Um, that's pretty serious. Again, when we're talking about apostolic doctrine and essentials of the Christian faith, this is pretty essential. I mean, to deny that the Holy Spirit is a person is essentially to deny the Trinity and to deny the, the Christian faith. And so, um, very important that we understand that first, as well as the Father and the Son, He is eternal God. And you notice there that it has a few uh, references. Um, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Anybody, does that come to mind what that is? Maybe without turning in the Bible? Anybody think? I see, I see uh, <laughs> Eric's going like this. Um, what does that mean, Eric? I think I know what you mean. It's <laughs> in a UFO hovering, right? We don't. It's, we don't exactly know uh, what exactly what that's like, and uh, but that's how it's described. So at the very beginning, the spirit uh, is is described as hovering over the waters, because as God creates all things in what are described as six days, right? He separates the waters from the sky, and uh, the Holy Spirit is involved in that process. We sometimes think of the, the Father as the Creator, the Son as the Redeemer, and the Spirit as the Sanctifier. But that's, we have to be careful when we use that language because all three persons have a role in creation. And we can go through all the scriptures and <clears throat> see how many times Christ, for example, is spoken of, you know, the Word, that the, all things were made through Him and that all things were made for him. He has a role in creation, and the Spirit has a role in creation. He's seen hovering over the waters. It's by the power of the Spirit that these things are brought into being. So the Father speaks these things through the Word, through the Son, and they're brought about by the Spirit. He's always the agent for applying 
the work of the Father and the Son. So uh, he has a role in creation too. And then how does he have a role in redemption? Okay, he seals us. Uh, Essentially, I mean, he does a whole bunch of things, doesn't he? Regenerates us, calls us with the word, unites us with Christ. Uh, He's the one that will raise us from the dead on the last day. Uh, This is the language of Scripture. Everyone just says he raised Christ from the dead, he'll raise us from the dead. We can sum it all up, I think, by saying that uh, Christ accomplished redemption for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit applies that redemption to us. Uh, so he's the, he's the applicator of uh, what Christ has accomplished. And uh, so without him, there is, there is no redemption, just as there would be no redemption without the, the Father or the Son. So very important that we, we get that and that we, we understand that. There's a lot of confusion uh, you know, about the, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. If we think about some of the things, if we're very careful about what Jesus says in, the, in his Upper Room Discourse, if you want to turn there with me real quick. Uh, so Upper Room Discourse, it's been said, is the greatest sermon ever preached on earth, followed by the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth. And so that's John 14, 15, and 16, when Christ is in the Upper Room with his disciples. John 17 is the prayer. But he says a lot of things here. I mean, this is on the night when he eats the Passover meal, the night when he's betrayed, the night before he's crucified, the night that he institutes the Lord's Supper. And he gives this beautiful sermon and uh, says many things that are important. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, and that where I am going, you may be also. So he's talking about how he's going away, and you can imagine how distraught they are about that. And he's not talking so much about the cross as he is about his ascension into heaven. And, uh, and he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. <clears throat> Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. And the word another there in Greek, uh, the word alos, it means of the same quality as himself. And then the word uh, parakletos, the word helper, is uh, kind of a hard word to translate into English. It can be helper, it can be advocate. Um, He's not just somebody who kind of helps you along, gives you a skip in your step, but uh, is somebody who, again, applies the work of redemption and is also an advocate for uh, Christ's people. And he says, he will be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. But also the spirit, is, uh, by the spirit given to us, it shows that we are adopted and we are not orphans in this world. Verse 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then if we look over in chapter 15, uh, yeah, he actually has, he, says, he talks about the Holy Spirit in all three sections, all three chapters. But in chapter 
15, in verse, look down at verse 26. But when the Helper comes, and so now he's talking about Pentecost, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth. By the way, this is why we say in in the Nicene Creed that the Holy Spirit was sent from the Father and the Son. Because Jesus says that. He says both. I will pick up on that later. It split the church in 1054, but um, we can talk about that later. Uh, He will bear witness about me. Notice that. He will bear witness about me. And then in chapter 16, it is to your advantage that I go away. Verse 7, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I, if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay? And then verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And the Father has, the, and the, all that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Okay, so what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Uh, again, applying the work of Jesus Christ but also bearing witness to the work of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that look like in uh, a church setting? For example, how do you know if the church you go to is a spirit-filled church? I don't know if you've ever heard people say that before. You know, I'm looking for a spirit-filled church. I've actually had people call the church back when we used to use landlines. And I'm not kidding you. Uh, say, I'm really looking for a spirit-filled church. Now, what do you suppose people mean when they say that? I mean, what comes to your mind? Charismatic, okay. <laughs> um, what's that? Tongues. Yeah, or a lot of times it's just, uh, what I, when I've talked with people, they also mean um, just a happy, joyful atmosphere, um, Oftentimes, what they kind of have in mind, unfortunately, is music that really moves you. Uh, not a dead church. Actually, I had several people say this. And I was like, well, what's a dead church? And, uh, well, you know, just where, basically, they mean the music is boring. Um, it's interesting. Does anybody know where that term dead church comes from in Scripture? Can anybody think of it? Revelation. Revelation. Very good. Okay, how many churches are described in the opening of Revelation? Seven, very good. And one is a dead church. Anybody remember which one it was? What's that? Not Laodicea, that was the lukewarm church. I'll be nice, I'll be nice. You can, you can try. What, what does it rhyme with? Uh, it rhy- yeah, it rhymes with read Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. Uh, uh, anybody remember? Anybody remember? Two syllables? Starts with an S? Sardis. Sardis. Good. And what did Sardis look like? It looked like this. This is the way John describes it, or Jesus describes it. He says, you know, that, that old church with the roof that needs to be redone out on the outskirts of town, you know, just a bunch of old people going to it, that's a dead church. That's how it's described, right? How is the church of Sardis described? Some of you, I can see, are like trying to look. 
filled with activity. Big. Yeah, it says you have a reputation for being alive, but in fact you're dead. And there's a lot of that today. And again, I don't want to say, yeah, we're the Reformed people, we got the small churches, we're spirit-filled churches, and all those big churches, they're not. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's too simple to do. But in fact, it's sad that some of it is true. There are a lot of places that are big, that look very alive, parking lots full, thousands and thousands of people, dynamic music, dynamic speaker. Um, in Joel Osteen's church, they even have dynamic lights on the ceiling that change. And they're all, they've all been researched by, I'm not kidding you, psychologists and neurologists to give effects to the mind while you're going. Through. I mean, these are happening places, right? But a church can look like that and be dead. Meanwhile, a church could look like eh, simple liturgy, basic, few people, but be very alive. How do you know the difference? How do you know if it's a spirit-filled church but not spirit-filled church? Why don't your kid just ask you this over breakfast? Come you got to answer. What's that? Is Christ preached there? And where, how would we know that? Because that's what Pastor Brown says. Right? No. You don't have implicit faith in me. I will let you down. Think of the text we heard this morning. Acts. Right. What did Peter preach? He preached Christ. He preached Christ. So here you can't get more Pentecostal than Acts 2. That's as Pentecostal as it gets. And when the Spirit was filled, when the Spirit filled the Apostle to preach, what did the, what did the Apostle preach? Did he, did, he, did he preach a message like Joel Osteen? I'll pick on Joel Osteen today. Yeah, he preached a, he preached a redemptive historic. He exposited Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 and applied them to Christ. Preached law and gospel. That's spirit-filled. So the, uh, the, the Holy Spirit, in other words, uh, it's not that we're looking for all kinds of crazy activity. Yeah, there was some amazing activity that happened that day in, the ter- in terms of the apostles preaching and proclaiming in foreign tongues, and that was a supernatural event. And people heard, the, the, not gibberish, but people could understand in their own native tongue. Because remember, people came from all over the Roman Empire. And they spoke Hebrew, they spoke Greek, but they also spoke their local dialects. Uh, people would speak you know, multiple languages in the, in the ancient world, as they do in many other parts of the world today. Um, you've heard the joke before. What do you call a person who only speaks one language? An American. Yeah. Uh, everybody else usually speaks you know, uh, more than one. But the, the, what you find with there was in these languages that were being spoken, they heard a coherent message about Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit shines upon Christ, not upon himself. So just as these lights here are uh, illuminating this back here, very appropriate, a cross. Okay, if we turn them off, it gets a little darker here. The lights aren't shining on themselves. They're not bearing witness on themselves. So if I say, I really want a spirit-filled church. I really want a, a, a luminescent uh, wall. Okay, well, there it is. It's shining on Jesus Christ. 
And that's the way the apostles preached. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. What else do we see uh, in our lives? So we see that in church. Is this is Christ being proclaimed in all of his glory? The law, the gospel. And again, it might not even be the most dynamic preacher. You know, um, the, the first thing you say is not, oh, I really like this guy because I like his voice or his mannerisms or his, you know, the way he wears his tie or what. It's the message. How's the message? And it's not even, well, it really touched me or I, I really liked how clear he made things, but is Christ being proclaimed? That's what you have with Peter. I mean, if you preached Peter's sermon today, I don't think that it would be the most dynamic sermon. It wouldn't win any awards as, you know, best sermon. But it's proclaiming Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. Uh, That's a spirit-filled sermon. We know the Holy Spirit is active in a church like that. How else do we know the Holy Spirit is active in a church? What's that? Okay, the sacraments. What else? What else? How else is the Holy Spirit? He's sent to convict us of sin, righteousness, church discipline. Yeah. What's that? The law is read, where we see people confessing their sins. Um, you know, one thing we have to always remember, you know, as a pastor, you end up talking to folks um, frequently uh, that have gone through some kind of failure uh, on a weekly basis. I do. Um, And one thing that we always need to be reminded of is that the believer has this deep conviction, this this sense of sorrow and pain in his or her heart that that he or she has sinned against the Lord. And what's, what's interesting there is how when we feel that sorrow, inevitably you feel like the worst Christian on earth. You're like, man... There's like first string, second string, third string, and I'm at the bottom of third string, maybe not even there, and, uh, because here I am again. And, uh, but, but what is it that's causing that person to feel sorrow? What is it that's causing that person to reach out to their pastor and say, I got to talk to you, and sits down and just talks about, you know, here's the dirt, and I am just... What is it that causes that person to do that? Because you don't do that in the world, do you? You hide that. You put on a face. You, you manipulate. I mean, you go in for a job interview and you got to sell it, right? You basically got to tune everything up and basically BS people about yourself. And it's, it's pretty bad if you think about it. Go in there and tell them how great I am and say a bunch of things that... You know, I'm embellishing. But in the church, does it work like that? Well, but isn't that the Holy Spirit working in someone's heart? Isn't that the evidence of someone sealed by the Spirit of God who feels this sense of guilt and this conviction? And I have failed. And we need to remember this. Married couples, remember this. You know, our tendency sometimes when when a spouse comes... I was so wrong. I, I, I shouldn't have done that. And, you know, please forgive me. Sometimes we're like, you, you, they admit it. You bet you're wrong. 
You know, do you know how I felt? And, you know, and that's what comes out. But we need to remember, it's the Holy Spirit that's brought that kind of humility into that heart, convicting of sin. So that they now feel this guilt and this sorrow, this shame, this regret, and they want reconciliation. And that's available, of course, you know, because of the gospel. Um, these are important things for us to understand. And so it's an evidence, the struggle in the Christian, of the Holy Spirit's work in that person's life. The Holy Spirit's work in the pilgrim's life doesn't mean that they enter in now to this higher level of, uh, of morality and obedience so that they, they basically fly above sin. Um, no, it means now that they fight sin. They repent of sin. They turn from sin. But there's still going to be bumps. There's going to be turbulence. And, uh, and it's not that, man, I'm not getting better. I'm getting worse. No, actually what's happening as you go on in the Christian life and you still have these failures is that as you mature, the Holy Spirit is, is showing you how sinful you really are, how you were to begin with. In other words, the, the pathway to growth and to holiness, uh, it, it's, as the Puritans used to say, it's paved with a sense of your own wretchedness. When you start in the Christian life, you don't think you're that bad. And then as you go along, you realize how many layers there is. And the Holy Spirit does that work in us. And uh, it's important that we get that because it's a, it's a pastoral application. He's been given to me personally, the, the Heidelberg says. So that by true faith, he makes me share in Christ and all his blessings, okay, union, application, comforts me. Okay, so not only does he assure me that I belong to Jesus Christ, but part of that comfort also is when I struggle with sin and recognize that this is an evidence, the fact that I, I feel bad about this and hate it and want to turn from it and don't want to have anything to do with this anymore is evidence that I belong to Jesus Christ. And I can't think of anything more comforting than that. And then to know that I'm covered by his blood. That God doesn't deal with me according to my iniquities. And he remains with me forever. That I don't have to worry that he's going to withdraw from me. But, I, but because I belong to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is, is a, a seal on me. It's a stamp that says, this one belongs to the Lord Jesus. And is, and is working in our lives. And the fruit that's coming out in our lives, little by little, it's never as quickly as we want it to be. Uh, Gerhardus Voss said that those are like prophecies of what will come in full in the consummation. Fruits of love, joy, patience, humility, kindness, self-control. And, and, and part and parcel of that is, is also confession forgiveness, bearing with one another. So these are the things that we see in the, the life of the church and the, the individual Christian that show us the work of the Holy Spirit. Questions on, on any of that? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right, godly grief. It's painful, godly grief. I mean, read Psalm 51. That's pain, just pain. But think of the difference between someone indwelt by the Spirit and someone not. 
when Nathan comes and brings the law to David, the Holy Spirit, you know, shows David how he's failed. Someone who is not indwelt by the Spirit obviously isn't going to resist that, um, uh, justify himself, um, try to suppress any sorrow or regret. Regret. Anybody can be, you don't have to be a Christian, you don't have to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit to have regret. But godly sorrow and repentance, that's, a, that's something that only the Spirit can produce. But it does, it's, it's painful for a while. It hurt, it, your bones ache, as David says. And uh, that's precisely what he's talking about. It's not just regret, like the world would know, but it's, uh, it produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, if that makes sense. We can see how the Lord has used things in our own lives, our, our own failures, to produce repentance and godliness and, and uh, continuance in the Christian life. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's correct. It's amazing. You know, I mean, we, we have to recognize things like that, in, in things like that, how, how the Holy Spirit is active. So often we get it wrong. We think that the Spirit-filled church is the one where there's a lot of, woo you know, excitement. And, um, no, it's more ordinary. It's more ordinary, you know. It's like a tree growing slowly. Um, you go out there and you look for a, a radical experience in your backyard. I want to see the tree grow. I'm going to watch it. You know, nothing happens. But in fact, it is growing. And over time, if you look, you can see from season to season. Hey, wow! It has grown. You know, it has uh, it has produced something. I've got eucalyptus trees, so sometimes you can actually see them grow. You know, if, like after a rain like this, if the sun comes out, you can hear them. <laughs> So, but I'm joking. Yeah, but you can see the analogy. And that's, I think, why the New Testament so often uses uh, farming and agriculture and, uh, you know, as analogies to the Christian life. But, but we, we've got to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in the ordinary. That is very, very key. Again, the conviction you feel, Christ being preached, simple things like that, according to the Word of God, show the Holy Spirit. Ed, you Yeah. Uh, well, I think the reason why it's not used as much is just because it's it's kind of big and unwieldy. Uh, it's three hundred. It's three. It's over three hundred questions. Maybe th- close to three fifty or more. Um, this is called his larger catechism, but it's fantastic. It's not in wide circulation. Um, I have a I have it in a book, a copy of it, and. Um, I love it. I've used it a lot in articles and um, books and things on covenant theology. But, um, but yeah, I think we should go through it. That'd be fun. And just crank, crank through it. He, he actually had, uh, let's get, get us off on a tangent here, but any opportunity I have to, to point out how great Continental Reformed is, um, a lot of times our Presbyterian brothers will say, well, the Westminster, you know, it deals with covenant theology. And, um, but 
Ursinus's catechism, which was in the 1560s, um, I think it was 1561 or two, is filled with covenant theology. Covenant of works, covenant of grace, all this stuff that wasn't in the Westminster for another 80 years. Take that, I say. So. I love the Westminster. But no, it's, it's really good. It's filled with, with good stuff. So, Any other questions, though, about uh, Holy Spirit, his work? Um, real quick, then, on let's look at this, this passage briefly. One of the passages, passages that's uh, referred to, so we have a few minutes. Look at Ephesians with me, Ephesians chapter 1. And as I was saying how uh, the, the triune Godhead always acts in concert amongst the persons. You know, one person doesn't act apart from the other two persons. Notice how Paul deals with that in uh, discussing our salvation. Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So this is the first thing he wants to say to the the churches there in Ephesus. Even as he chose us in him, he's talking about the Father, chose us in him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless uh, before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Christ is the Beloved. In him, Christ, the Son, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, that's by the Spirit using the word, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So the whole word of God about Christ. In him, Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been, being, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now here's where we see the Holy Spirit make an appearance in this, um, this opening to the uh, Ephesians. So he's talking about the Father predestining us, the Son redeeming us in it through his blood, in the flesh. Now, in him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, okay, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is, and he uses this word here that's fantastic, that is translated guarantee in English, or we could say down payment, uh, the arabon. Uh, it, it, it's like a first installment. Uh, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, this is important because, you know, we might have come from a tradition that talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And uh, if you were like me, you're always worried that you didn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you wanted the baptism of the Holy Spirit because it was like the turbo boost. You know, it's like, man, I just... I can't get any traction, you know? These cars keep passing me up on the, on the road. And I want the, I want the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And 
I'll be honest, as a young Christian in Calvary Chapel, I went forward so many times to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, uh, you know, hands laid on me and hoping that something's going to happen. Not so much to speak in gibberish, but just to have more power. I want more power in my life. And what's wrong with that? You know, I wanted to, I wanted that push. But if you see what, what Paul is saying here, he's saying that every Christian, people who are chosen by the Father are also redeemed by the Son, and all of those in that group are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That this is common to all believers. It's not something reserved for a select few. It's not something that uh, gives you a heightened awareness for a while. You know, it's a second blessing. Uh, even Martin Lloyd-Jones failed in this matter. You know, when you get in his commentary on or his, his sermons on uh, Ephesians 1, I, I love Martin Lloyd-Jones on Anytime he's dealing with law and gospel, but he just falls right into this kind of charismatic idea that the the sealing of the Spirit is the second blessing that you get. Um, No, you have the Spirit. You have Him. Rather, He has you. He indwells you. And if you didn't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you wouldn't be baptized. But the, the evidence, first of all, is that you believe the gospel. And you feel bad about your sin, and you want to come to church and hear the gospel preached. Those things alone are evidence that you're sealed by the Spirit. And if you're sealed by the Spirit, just think with me for a second what that means. You have the first installment, the down payment of your glorification. That the same Spirit who caused you to hear the gospel and believe on Christ the same Spirit who very ordin- it seemed very ordinary, this very gradual thing, where you started hearing the gospel and started believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It was supernatural work by the Holy Spirit. That same Spirit, though, who just works in the ordinary means of the church, it leads you back to that fountain week after week. It gives you the, the strength to take one step after another, to continue believing on the Lord Jesus year after year. That same Spirit's going to raise your body from the dead. And you're going to get the full measure of your salvation. It's all going to be applied to you in the redemption of your body, which the Spirit is going to do because Christ has purchased it for you. All who are elect have been redeemed. All who are redeemed are sealed. All who are sealed will be glorified. And indeed, loved ones, that is, that is good news. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit and His work in our lives. We thank you that he continues as the helper and the advocate, the paraclete, to convict us of sin, to bear witness about Jesus Christ, to lead us in the way everlasting. And thank you for your promise that just as he seals us now, that he will raise us from the dead. Bless us, we pray, Father, as pilgrims in this life, as we continue to follow Christ. And may we do so by the power of the Holy Spirit whom you have given to us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.